Hey, Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad. I'm your host, Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And we're here to talk true crime. But before we do, let's give a good shout out to our lovely new patrons. We have Angelica, Kim, and Isabella. Thank you so much for supporting our podcast, and I hope you enjoy the ad-free episodes and extra bonus content. Soon. Yeah. Our goal is August, so... So hopefully by the end of this month, we'll have that first bonus episode, and then we'll just keep doing it every month. Oh, and wherever you're listening, if you could subscribe, that would be awesome. Yeah, I guess it helps the algorithms, whatever that is. (laughs) Algorithms. No one understands the algorithm. I don't know. Is it, like, controlled by aliens? I think. I think it actually might be. Mm -hmm. We don't know. All right. And with this case, we want to give you an extra content warning because this episode depicts murder and sexual violence against a child and also violence against a dog. Some listeners may find the contents of this episode disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Do you ever get the feeling that you're being watched? It's a scary thought, but usually it's just your mind playing tricks on you. What's even scarier are the details in this story because it was actually happening to Tina Herman, a mother with two kids living in a small family home in Howard, Ohio, a town only 47 miles away from Columbus, Ohio. Now, Tina had no idea she was being watched by a man who was in the woods off in the distance from her home and possibly had been creepily watching the family home for days. He slept in a sleeping bag while he watched her coming and going, trying to establish a pattern. He knew a man lived with her, and he knew that that man usually left around 3 o'clock in the morning. That was Greg Borders, Tina's ex-boyfriend, who had to leave at 3 o'clock to get to his job several hours away. Despite being broken up, the two were still living together while Tina was looking for a new apartment for her and her children, 13-year-old Sarah and 11-year-old Cody. Sarah and Cody were from Tina's first and only marriage to Larry Maynard, a truck driver with whom she shared custody of her children. Tina and Larry were high school sweethearts who met when they were just 15 years old. Larry described it as love at first sight. Soon the two were inseparable, and at 19 years old, Tina gave birth to their first child, Sarah, and a few years later, Cody arrived. Both babies were premature, but both fought hard to grow and thrive. For a few years, their life was idyllic. But unfortunately, with Larry's work taking him away sometimes for six weeks at a time, the marriage couldn't survive. But they still remained friendly and co-parented their children well together. What Larry didn't know was that Tina had fallen on hard times and her house was in foreclosure. Her best friend and neighbor, 41-year-old Stephanie Spring, was supposed to be helping Tina look for apartments on November 10th, 2011. But on this particular day, none of them realized that Tina had a stalker in the woods. The man who had been watching Tina's house fell back asleep for a few hours, and when he woke back up, he noticed that Tina's truck was gone from the driveway. This was finally his perfect chance to get inside the home. Tina's garage door was broken, and it didn't close all the way, leaving a small gap at the bottom. 
This is where he entered her home by sliding under the bottom of the garage door. Once inside the garage, he merely kicked the door open that led to inside the house and entered the home. Then he walked around, allegedly looking for something to steal. Later, he would claim that he couldn't find anything of value. So after a few hours, Tina returns back home from dropping off her children at school and going to the grocery store. Tina's groceries were later found dropped on the ground in the kitchen, so it's assumed that's where the creepy man who had been watching her from the woods confronted her. Stephanie likely saw Tina arrive home and drove her car over to her house since the two had plans to look at some apartments. From court documents, we know that Stephanie, hearing the commotion in Tina's bedroom, saw a man straddling Tina on her bed trying to knock her out with a blackjack. A blackjack is a baton-shaped weapon wrapped in leather and often used as a club or by law enforcement. The man tried to knock Tina out and struck her several times, but she was still conscious and fighting back. The stalker from the woods was losing control of the situation and his plan had gone wrong. He reached for a long serrated hunting knife he brought with him and stabbed Tina several times in the back to incapacitate her. Then he ran after Stephanie, finding her in Sarah's room. He quickly overpowered Stephanie and stabbed her too until she was dead. Then he went back to Tina's room and stabbed Tina a few more times until he was sure she was dead too. The blood evidence showed that he dragged both women into the bathroom where he began to dismember them. Later, police would find fat residue and human tissue in the bathtub. From this, they knew at least one person was dead. According to court records, he lost track of time when Tina's two children returned home from school. As they walked through the door, they immediately realized that something was wrong. Their dog was missing from his cage, and there was blood all over the ground. As they called for their mom, they were confronted by the man from the woods. He immediately grabbed Cody, stabbing him in the entryway, and from the blood pattern evidence, it appears he dragged Cody's body to the living room floor. Then the man ran after Sarah, hoping she didn't have any time to call the police. He gained control of Sarah and blindfolded her and tied her up with a cord from an electrical fan. He left her in the kitchen while he moved Cody's body to the bathroom for what he would later refer to as processing. Then he dismembered Cody, placing him in a bag along with his mother Tina and neighbor Stephanie, as well as the body of their dog, and leaving only one person alive. Sarah, who was tied up and left in the kitchen. At just 13 years old, she had to have been so scared as she just sat helpless as a horrifying murder just took place in her home. She lost her brother, her mother, and a neighbor. He pulled Stephanie's Jeep into the garage and loaded up the bags and walked a blindfolded Sarah into the back of the car, where he told her if she moved, he would kill her. They drove for a while, even switching vehicles twice. Each time he left her in a vehicle, he told her that she was being watched and not to move. A few hours later, they finally arrived at the man's home, which was located only 10 miles away on Columbus Avenue. There, he placed Sarah in his basement on a makeshift bed made from a pile of leaves. If you think that's weird, it only gets stranger. Meanwhile, on that same day, Tina Herman wasn't answering her phone and had failed to show up for work at the Dairy Queen. 
Within a few hours, her boss and also friend immediately became concerned and called to the Mount Vernon Police Department and requested that they do a well check. She felt it was very out of character for her not to show up. She was a very dedicated worker. So the police went to Tina's home that evening and noticed that her truck was in the driveway, but no one appeared to be home. The next day, Stephanie's family began getting concerned because she, too, was missing. Stephanie was a mother of three children, a 20-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 9-year-old. It was unlike Stephanie to stop communicating with her family or fail to return home. One of Stephanie's friends went to the Dairy Queen the next day looking for Tina to let her know that Stephanie was missing and also hoping that she had some information. But Tina had failed to show up for work again for the second day in a row. Now that Tina's friend was also missing, her boss immediately became concerned. She knew something was wrong. She drove directly to Tina's home and let herself in through the unlocked door. And what she saw was horrifying. There were large quantities of blood all over the house, spilled groceries on the ground, and empty beer cans everywhere. It looked like someone went on a drinking binge and a murder spree. She immediately called 911, which triggered a full-scale missing persons investigation. And at this time, police were also informed that Stephanie Sprang was missing and her Jeep was found in Tina's garage. Tina's truck, which had been there the night before when the police did the well check, was now gone. And Greg Borders was located a few hours away on a golf course. Greg was also concerned. He immediately granted police permission to enter the residence and what they found confirmed that at least three people, possibly four, were severely wounded. In fact, it was likely one or more of them were mortally wounded. There was a large blood stain in the middle of the living room where someone had poured bleach and motor oil. Police surmised that someone was trying to destroy DNA evidence. There was a bloody glove in the bathroom, which also meant that their perpetrator was likely wounded. There was a large blood stain and blood spatter going up the walls and closet doors in Tina's room. There was another large blood stain in Sarah's room and the family dog was missing. Of interest was the fact that there were footprints which indicated there were two people who had walked out of that house making prints in both blood and motor oil. One of those prints had a distinctive lobster pattern which matched an empty shoebox located in Sarah's room. Police strongly believed that at least one, possibly more of their victims, was still alive. And another clue that they found was located in the garage. Their suspect had left behind an open box of 55-gallon heavy-duty construction-grade trash bags and an open bag of tarps with one missing. Both items had been partially used, but of particular note was a receipt left inside the bag, which had a timestamp from Walmart from earlier that day. It was a very lucky break in the case. Mount Vernon police went to the store the next day and looked at the surveillance footage. There, they saw a man go to the counter and purchase the exact items that were found in Tina's garage with cash, which unfortunately means they didn't have his name. But they did see him walk to a silver Toyota Yaris with a dent in the rear fender. In fact, he was wearing the same shirt from the surveillance video in his driver's license photo. They pulled his DMV records and noticed that he had two addresses associated with him. 
On his driver's license, he had his mother's home address, which was just a few streets over from Tina Herman's home. But the second address came from a police report. It was on Columbus Avenue. A few weeks earlier, on October 24, 2020, Matthew Hoffman's ex-girlfriend filed a police report against him for assault. And in the report, she stated that she had moved out of the home the week prior, but came back to pick up the last few of her things. Once inside, Matthew pushed her to the ground and tried to strangle her by placing his forearm against her throat until she felt like she was going to pass out. Then he would stop and start all over again. The entire encounter lasted under an hour. A few days later, she dropped the charges. Law enforcement had a strong lead, and they were still hoping to find some of their victims alive. They were sure they had the right suspect when they discovered his name had already appeared in their investigation. On the evening of November 11th, Tina's truck was found abandoned at Kenyon College, with two full cans of gasoline in the back. There was already a man nearby who seemed to be loitering around, leaning up against his car, which was parked near Tina's truck. When the officers asked what he was doing, he said he was waiting to pick up his girlfriend, Sarah. When they asked for Sarah's last name, he said he didn't know it because it was a new relationship. That man was Matthew Hoffman, and his silver Toyota Yaris had a dent in the rear fender, just like the car in the surveillance video from Walmart. It was Matthew's intention to go back to Tina's home and burn it down with all the evidence he had left inside. He never could have imagined the investigation would begin so soon. On Sunday, November 14th, four days after the disappearance, police arrived at Matthew Hoffman's home with a full SWAT team. They tossed in a flash grenade, not knowing if there was more than one suspect. There, they found a disoriented Matthew Hoffman sleeping on the couch. Mount Vernon police detective Craig Feeney said, We plowed our way through the smoke and we saw something on the couch. We yanked him to the floor and he said, What's going on? And I said, You tell me. But he was done talking. While his arrest only took seconds, going through the house would take them days. What they saw in the living room immediately alarmed them. There was a large tarp spread over the floor, and it was covered three feet high in leaves. Police were worried that it might contain the bodies of their four missing victims. After poking the pile, they discovered it was all leaves. The pile of leaves was just the beginning of the horror show to come. In the bathroom, they found 110 grocery bags filled with leaves stapled to the walls in neat rows, almost as if they were being used for decoration. The leaves surrounded the mirror in the toilet. Inside the home, they found a receipt for one of the pairs of SureGrip gloves they found in the bathroom of Tina Herman's house. They were purchased at Lowe's on November 4th, along with duct tape and a second pair of gloves. They also found a receipt for what they called a jungle knife off the internet. It was a long, razor-sharp, serrated hunting knife. The most bizarre thing they found inside the house was in the freezer. They found two frozen squirrels and some popsicles. After they cleared the house, they moved the cabinet that was blocking the stairway to the basement. Halfway down the basement, detectives noticed the entire floor was covered in leaves. 
There, in the corner, laying on a sleeping bag, was 13-year-old Sarah Maynard. Her hands had gloves on them that were wrapped in duct tape, which resembled paddles. Her feet were also tied, and she was wearing a garbage bag around her legs as a makeshift diaper. Sarah was finally safe. However, there were still three people missing. Police were hoping to find the other three with Matthew's help. Unfortunately, Matthew wasn't talking. For hours, he sat in silence with his eyes closed hands in his lap and refusing to speak or acknowledge the officer's presence. When the officers would leave the interrogation room, he would open his eyes and drink from a bottle of water. But once they came back into the room, he would shut down again, close his eyes, and pretend that he was all alone. Investigators did all of the talking, telling them they found Sarah and that she was alive. Then they would ask him who else was alive. They'd ask him if he was picturing his victims in his mind, but nothing they said could get him to speak. Eventually, Special Agent Joe Dietz with the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation finally got Matthew to communicate. He asked Matthew if he would help him to find Sarah, who was looking for her mom and her brother. He asked him if he could help bring closure to the loved ones who were missing their family. Matthew gestured to his heart, hitting it several times, and then signed with his hands as if they were breaking a stick, indicating his heart was broken. Finally, he began wiping tears away from his eyes, and then he was asked if Sarah mattered to him. Agent Dietz told him if he didn't care about Sarah, that he could have easily killed her too. That is when Matthew uttered his first phrases. He said, quote, I knew I must have done something wrong when I found her in my house. She was tied up, and so I took care of her, end quote. He told investigators that he found Sarah in his house on Thursday, the day after Sarah had disappeared. Prior to that moment, he had no memory of what happened or how she came to be at his home. He told investigators that he found Sarah in his house on Thursday, the day after Sarah had disappeared. Prior to that moment, he had no memory of what happened or how she came to be in his home. He told Dietz, quote, I figure if I had done something, I didn't know. I just could try to put the pieces together, end quote. Then Matthew closed his eyes again and didn't utter another word until the tape ran out, four hours later. They brought him back into the interrogation room the next day. He remained mute until Agent Dietz came back into the room. He asked Agent Dietz if he would accompany him in the bathroom alone, just the two of them. Dietz said, if you promise not to try to take my gun or escape, I'll take you to the bathroom. Matthew assured him he only wanted to speak to him away from the cameras in the interrogation room. So Dietz took him to the bathroom, and Matthew asked him if he had any recording devices on him. Dietz gave his two cell phones to the officer outside the door, and that's when Matthew confessed that his memories had finally come back. He said that he had a vision of being inside of a food processing plant carrying a bag. 
When he looked inside the bag, there were cut-up body parts. That's when his entire memory came back to him, and he remembered what he had done. He said he wanted to write out a full confession, including a map to the location of Tina, Stephanie, and Cody's bodies. He wanted to do it in a legal manner where his attorney would hold on to the confession only to be released upon his death. Then Dietz would take him on a field trip to find the bodies, and while there, Matthew would run away and Dietz would shoot him dead in an escape attempt. Then upon his death, his lawyer would release his confession with location of the bodies. He told Dietz he was a monster and didn't want to live in a cage forced to take antipsychotic drugs. He said he would rather die. Of course, Dietz refused and recounted the entire conversation on the record once they returned to the interrogation room. Then Matthew stated that he made the whole thing up and didn't know anything. Then he never uttered another word. At that point, the prosecutor had a defense attorney assigned to Matthew, despite his previous refusals for an attorney. While law enforcement and the entire community were looking for Tina, Stephanie, and Cody, the public began filling in the blanks about Matthew Hoffman. Investigators learned from Matthew's neighbor, Donna Davis, that he was the town weirdo. She said he spent most of his time in his room or up in trees, staring at them and stalking them. She said his dogs disappeared a few weeks earlier and everyone assumed he killed them. She also said that he had a fascination with burning leaves and would start a fire in his backyard every night. She recounted a story when Matthew gave her daughter a ride home and took unfamiliar back roads that extended the trip by an hour. Donna's daughter felt very uncomfortable, and after that, she wouldn't allow her children to be outside when he was outside. She also said that he never went to the grocery store and ate the squirrels he caught in his traps. She said that her family was feeding the squirrels, and he was eating them. Investigators looked more into Matthew Hoffman, and they learned that in October of 2010, the 30-year-old's life was in shambles. His girlfriend had left him and moved out of his home. His car was about to be repossessed. He lost his job as a tree trimmer and his electricity had been recently turned off. He was surviving off unemployment benefits and was in jeopardy of losing his home too. As a child, he was described as an odd duck with an obsession with outdoors, camping, and more specifically, trees. He had climbing equipment and loved to spend all of his free time in the trees located in the woods that lined his mother and stepfather's property. He would spend hours in trees or hammocks, often unseen, and watching life go on down below. Trees also enabled his interest in voyeurism. He was fascinated watching the mundane activities of the families that surrounded his home and liked it even more through the lens of a bird eye view. He was quite literally above everyone else. In addition to his love of trees, he became fascinated with the animals that lived in the trees and he developed a taste for trapping and killing small animals. In fact, he would kill anything that wandered into his family's backyard, which included stray dogs, cats, rodents, rabbits, and squirrels. But it was the squirrels that fascinated him the most because they lived in the trees, making them their homes. And that fascination inevitably extended to wanting to consume the squirrels, and soon they became his main source of diet. He enjoyed the entire process of trapping them to killing them, skinning them, and preparing them for his own meals. 
it's believed his taste for eating squirrels stemmed from a paraphilia he developed for trees. Paraphilia is a condition in which a person's sexual arousal and gratification is strongly linked to objects or people outside of what is considered the norm. And Matthew's object of desires was exclusively from trees and things that he deemed parasitic to trees, such as leaves and squirrels. Once as a child, he decided to live exclusively outside for 27 days straight, only coming down from the trees to sometimes sleep in a tent. So as his life became in shambles, Matthew returned to what he knew and loved, trees. That is when investigators believe Matthew began stalking Tina Herman's neighbors. As we know, that is where Tina Herman lived with her ex-boyfriend and her two children. Now, interesting enough, Tina had reported that she got this feeling that she was being watched for weeks, and a few times they thought that a man had broken into their garage or had come up to their door to then only run away. Investigators believe it's highly likely that Matthew was stalking Tina's home for days, if not weeks, and despite his later denials, was more specifically stalking Tina's 13-year-old daughter, Sarah. She was likely his intended target all along, and the robbery was just a cover for other things he liked to do, including setting fires. In fact, after Matthew's arrest, investigators learned that when Michael was 20 years old, he went to live with his grandmother in Colorado. There, he enrolled in an electrical and plumbing apprentice program. After he completed the program, he obtained a job in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, working as a plumber's apprentice for Scott Barnes. Barnes described Matthew at the time as a quiet young man who was a little on the strange side. When he was working for Barnes, he was living at a transient hotel in Steamboat. Barnes said Matthew, quote, was a follower and did not have a strong personality. For a 20-year-old, that's unusual, especially to an employer who hires a lot of kids, end quote. Matthew worked for Barnes for about three months and then just stopped showing up for work one day. A few weeks later, Barnes was contacted by the police asking about a plumber he sent to a condominium complex that burned down. Fire investigators discovered that the fire began in a vacant apartment where high amounts of accelerants were used. The arsonist had used 10 gallons of gasoline, which caused the entire building to burn down, displacing 16 people from their homes. Many of them lost their vehicles as well, which were still trapped inside their garages as they slept. Barnes told police that he had sent Matthew Hoffman to that condo to fix a clogged sink. And while fixing that sink, Matthew learned that the owner was going to be out of town for a week, and so he decided to avail himself of their luxurious accommodations. And while there, he also used the owner's vehicle. It appears that Matthew had a habit of breaking into people's homes and walking around for hours observing how they lived and often taking small things like cash or jewelry, but other times taking nothing at all. Again, it was more of his fascination in watching how others lived their lives. Instead of a view from the trees, he was inside their homes. Once police had Matthew in custody, he quickly confessed. In fact, they were still asking him about stolen signs that they found in his hotel room when, out of the blue, he stated, You got me. I did it. I burned the place down. 
He told the investigators that he was living in the condo for the week and only went back because he was worried about his fingerprints. He only intended to destroy the inside of the condo and not the entire building, which caused over $2 million in property damage. He was convicted in 2001 for arson, burglary, assault, and motor vehicle theft. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to eight years in prison, but only served six years. He was released from Colorado Department of Corrections in January of 2007. And once he was released from prison, he was paroled to Ohio so that he could be close to his family. At first, Matthew lived with his mother just a few blocks from where Tina Herman was living. But later, he bought a four-bedroom, three-bath home 10 miles away with an unfinished basement. It's the same house where authorities eventually found the missing young 13-year-old girl, Sarah Maynard. In the book entitled The Girl in the Leaves, written by Robert Scott, with the help of Sarah Maynard and her father, Larry Maynard, Sarah recounted for police her version of events. When she was first rescued, she was disoriented, having lived in pitch darkness for four days. She immediately blurted out that she needed to go to school. Once she realized she had been rescued, she told police she believed her captor had killed her dog. But she didn't know about the fate of her mother, brother, or Stephanie. When she asked this man who kidnapped her if her family was dead, he told her not to worry about it. She told investigators that he was the only person she had contact with, but when he would leave her, he told her to stay quiet because he had someone watching the house in case she tried to escape. Sarah cooperated with her captor who wouldn't allow her to go to the bathroom. She was also starving. She hadn't eaten anything in four days because all she had been offered was squirrel something she wasn't hungry enough to eat yet. Sarah also confirmed that Matthew had repeatedly sexually assaulted her. While Sarah was in the hospital, the community were conducting search parties in Foundation Park where Matthew was known to spend a lot of time. And local area restaurants donated food and drinks to those who were out in the cold looking to bring closure to Tina and Stephanie's families. Eventually, through a plea deal with Matthew, he told them where he had hidden Tina, Stephanie, and Cody's bodies. In exchange, prosecutors agreed to take the death penalty off the table. He also agreed to plead guilty to 10 felony counts of murder, kidnapping, and rape. He wrote out a 10-page confession letter and drew a map to a 70-foot-tall, hollowed-out beech tree in the Cocosing Wildlife Area near Fredericktown. He used a pulley system to place the bodies inside the hollowed-out tree. He also made investigators promise not to cut down the tree, a promise they had no intention of keeping. They had a local tree trimmer come out and cut a rectangular hole in the tree where they found several garbage bags filled with the dismembered members of three people and one small dog. In one bag, they found the severed heads of Tina, Stephanie, and Cody along with the dog. In the other bags, they found torsos and limbs. Each torso had numerous stab wounds in the front and back. Each of them, Tina, Stephanie, and Cody, bled to death as a result of those wounds. A few days later, police released Matthew's confession. We will break the confession down for you into smaller parts with those portions that contain relevant information. The confession began by stating, I parked my car and walked from there to the house. I go to the woods across the street from the house a little after midnight. 
I slept across the street from the house that night in a sleeping bag. I woke up in the daylight. There were two vehicles parked at the house during the night, and I saw that the gray car had left. And we know that the gray car he is referring to belonged to Tina's ex-boyfriend, Greg Borders. The confession continues. I went back to sleep until around 9 on Wednesday morning. I stayed there until a woman left in a pickup truck. This meant there were no vehicles at the house. I walked across the street and tried to enter the front door, but it was locked. I then went in through the garage door. The garage door was not closed all the way, so I slid under it into the garage. I kicked the door into the house from the garage. By this time, it was approximately 10.30 a.m. Wednesday morning. I looked around the house to make sure no one was there. Even if I did not take anything, there was a certain amount of excitement in being in someone else's home without them being there. I was looking for anything of value that could be carried out easily, like money, jewelry, etc. I did not find anything of real value. I was getting ready to leave as I had been there approximately an hour, but someone pulled into the driveway. I was back in the bedrooms when she entered the house and was unable to exit without breaking a window and trying to jump out. I had brought my knife for a certain amount of intimidation in case I ran into someone and needed to make an escape. Now, we know that that person who drove into the driveway was the house owner, Tina, coming back with groceries and dropping her kids off at school. But although in his confession, it's clear he wants investigators to believe that this was a burglary gone wrong and not a sexually motivated kidnapping, Sarah's father, Larry Maynard, believes Matthew's confession was filled with lies. He believes Matthew always went there with the intention of killing people. Why else purchase the gloves and such a lethal hunting knife the week prior? He believed Matthew also intended on taking Sarah to replace his girlfriend. Matthew's confession continues by saying, When she made her way back into the bedrooms, I confronted her and made her get onto the bed lying face down. I believe that we were in her bedroom. I had a blackjack. I was going to try to knock her out. I hit her a couple of times in the head, but it would not knock her out. It was not doing the job, and I started panicking. The next thing I knew, her friend came into the bedroom. I have no idea when she got there, what she was doing there, and how she gained access. The other woman yelled at me. There were now two to deal with, and I did not know what to do. I grabbed the knife that I had put down on the nightstand and stabbed the woman on the bed through her back twice. I chased the other woman down and stabbed her a couple times in the chest. Instead of running out of the house, she ran into another bedroom. I believe this bedroom was for a girl due to the contents of the room. I then went back to the other bedrooms where the first woman was located and stabbed her a couple more times. I could tell that both women were now dead. In Matthew's confession letter, he also stated he treated Sarah well. He allowed her to play video games, bought her McDonald's, and slept with her in his arms each night. He also stated that Sarah loved the bed that he made for her out of leaves in an old sleeping bag. These are all lies because based on Sarah's own words, she explained quite the opposite in the book she helped to write with author Robert Scott. He ends his confession by stating he was in a total and complete shock after having to quickly kill both Stephanie and Tina. He states, at this time, I was in a total state of shock. I wandered around the house, slowly coming to the realization of what I had done and how bad it was. During this time, I killed the dog because it would not stop barking. 
After a while, I came to the conclusion that I was going to dispose of the bodies and burn the house down. At first, I thought about loading the bodies into a vehicle and driving it into Foundation Park Pond. I would swim away as the vehicle sank, but I felt that it was too cold and I might not be able to make it out of the water. I decided to process the bodies and dispose of them inside of a tree that I knew was hollow. I took the bodies into the bathroom and began processing the bodies to dispose of them. I used garbage bags from within the house and placed the bodies inside. Once I had finished processing the bodies, I moved the Jeep into the garage to load up the bodies. I still had a couple of bags to load into the Jeep when I heard the children come into the house. I confronted the children and the girl instantly ran to a bedroom. I stabbed the boy in the chest a couple times. I ran into the bedroom after the girl to make sure she was not on the phone for help. I saw the girl was not on the phone and I could not bring myself to kill her. I did not enter the house to kill those people. I did not know a single one of them. I did not know their names and I did not know who all lived at that house. I chose the house to break into because there was not any close neighbors and I noticed the garage door was ajar. I chose the house the day before. I did not plan for any of this to happen. I did not want to kill anyone, and I tried to knock the first woman out so that I would be able to escape. This was not working. A second woman showed up, and things quickly spiraled out of control. They kept escalating, and I was panicking. I only chose to process the bodies to make their disposal easier. Prosecutor John Thatcher read a statement from Sarah to Matthew Hoffman at his sentencing hearing. And in it, she stated that this has changed my whole life and my family's life, too. This is so sickening, Matthew, to know you even had the guts to do this to a family. I will no longer be afraid of you. Members of Stephanie's family spoke as well. They were disgusted that they had to trade Matthew's life for the remains of their mother, daughter, sister, and friend. They wished him a life of misery. And one relative stated that he was looking forward to Matthew getting what was coming to him in prison. Then, the judge sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Life hasn't gone smoothly in prison for Matthew. His family reports that he has been on anxiety medicine and has some problems getting along with others, just as the family of his victims were hoping for. And that concludes our case for today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening, and thank you all so much for listening to Crime Salad. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. <laughs>